0: Welcome everyone to the best episode of The Mandalorian Season 3 that we've had so far, in my opinion. Now that's not saying too much, of course, since you know the whole season was a bit all over the place. But I think this one really put things back on track. I just wish this episode would have happened maybe around episode four or five at the latest. Anyways, we got a ton to talk about, so let's get right to it. We enter Coruscant at night as Elia Kane, loyal spy of Moff Gideon who betrayed Doctor Pershing and fakes working for the New Republic, speaks to Gideon in the most Blade Runner-inspired scene to come to Star Wars yet. She is scanned by a. Probe droid and reveals her code, which is TK2755. Now, TK is Imperial Alphanumeric Code, and typically TKs were stormtroopers and officers. It's just a way to identify them. Gideon appears as a hologram, and we finally see him this season again, as she informs him that the pirates ran into trouble on Navarro. So, after all, the pirate attack was indeed part of Gideon's orders, as Carson Teva had predicted. He was right to want to stop the invasion. Kane informs Gideon that the bounty hunters were responsible, Bo-Katan, and Din Djarin. He is dumbfounded. He can't believe this because Din and Bo have different affiliations as Mandalorians. And as he knows, they're always fighting against each other. So their team-up is extremely unlikely. He tells her that he'll deal with the Mandalorians and ends the transmission. He moves past a bunch of tanks filled with clones of something. And I say something, not someone, because I believe he's creating combinations of beings, as he mentioned at the end of this episode. Now, these clones in these vats are some sort of an abomination. I don't think he's all that loyal to the Emperor in terms of Project Necromancer or Project Resurrection. I think he's really just creating his own sort of abomination, his own creature, his own monster. And I think this is why he used Dr. Pershing so much is because Dr. Pershing was really good at splicing genes and connecting different genes together from cross species. I believe this is why he wanted Grogu in the first place was to be able to harness its force energy or force abilities as well as its long age. As he walks down this hall with lasers that open, it reminds me of Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn versus Darth Maul, where he enters a room full of the Shadow Council. Now, the Shadow Council was originally created by Gallius Rax about a year after Return of the Jedi, so a year after the Emperor died. And it's basically a council that worked in the shadows, quite literally, to reform the Empire and bring it back to its height. There are all a bunch of Imperial loyalists, including Pelion, whom, in the Heir to the Empire novels back in the early 90s by Timothy Zahn, who was Thrawn's right hand man, is also there. Now, Pelion was also introduced in Rebels. He speaks of Grand Admiral's Thrawn return, bringing a new age of victory and a new fleet in Resurgence. He mentions Commandant Hux. This is the General Hux's father from the sequel trilogy. Gideon gives Pelion a little bit of shade and says that he's always mentioning Thrawn, yet no one ever seems to see Thrawn where Pelion says that that's the secret, his unknown whereabouts, and the secrecy of his return. Revealing such information would ruin everything. Gideon says Thrawn is never here, so maybe a new leader is needed, where everyone but Pelion agrees. It's clear that Gideon wants to put doubt into Thrawn's capabilities or his return, and to obviously take his spot. Hux's dad mentions Project Necromancer. Now, Project Necromancer means to bring back the dead, awaken the dead. And this, of course, is in reference to Palpatine. He asks Gideon what happened to Dr. Pershing and the research that he promised them. So, clearly Dr. Pershing was supposed to bring research to Gideon, who was supposed to bring research to the Shadow Council. The research, I think, would be to create a host that was Force-sensitive through means of cloning, that would allow Palpatine to transfer his essence into it, perhaps. This is quite almost impossible, of course, but I think that's what Gideon was trying to do with Grogu. However. I don't think he was doing it for Palpatine, but rather for his own army as he mentions at the end of the episode. Gideon tells him that Pershing was captured by the New Republic and the research was lost. This is why Cain melted his mind so that he'd be unable to talk about what Gideon did to him and what the research was. So now it's all starting to make sense. Hux insinuates that Pershing was held by him as a captive and forced to do experiments on Navarro, which of course is true. Gideon tells them off and says they're supposed to be sharing their resources, which he has requested three Praetorian guards, Thai interceptors, and bombers for his own safety. They question why he needs the security, and he reveals that the Mandalorians have returned. They plan to take Mandalore. They all say it's necessary to take them out now, and that this is of course because the entire Imperial base is on Mandalore. They end transmission with a long live The Empire chant, and we head to Navarro where Bo's fleet of Mandalorian night owls fly overhead and land at the Mando base that Karga gave them. I noticed that Grogu is sitting in Bo-Katan's lap instead of Din's, which was kind of weird, but maybe something will happen to Din, and they're foreshadowing that. Maybe they're trying to get us more comfortable with Grogu and Bo, maybe it's nothing. They all square off, Night Owls versus Children of the Watch, and the Armorer speaks, inviting them to make camp and to eat with them. Now These clans are warring tribes with opposite ideals. They hate each other. One removes their helmet whenever they want, while the other never takes it off. The Night Owls believe that the Children of the Watch are just bunch of superstitious weirdos, and the Children of the Watch feel that they are superior and move in the way of the old. Basically, the state of Star Wars fans today, but hey, we can all get along despite different beliefs, because at the end of the day, we're all Mandalorians. Grief Karga shows up, takes Mando to his office, and shows him an Anzelin in the center of IG-11, which is now IG-12, as he's being controlled by joysticks. Grogu goes into it and becomes the Hulkbuster, basically, and finally uses the droid to speak yes and no, which was actually really funny. So this whole time, we know for sure that he is able to understand things for sure, but he just can't speak. And I think this is possibly because his vocal cords haven't matured enough yet to be able to actually form sentences other than like a baby just, you know, cooing. We get a funny scene in the market where he just eats things and then finally we meet with the Mandalorians again at night. Bo-Katan speaks to everyone. She tells them all about Mandalore, she proposes to move to Mandalore and send a small recon party down to scout the surface. The planet is still unknown at this point, after the Empire's bombing, so they have to be quite careful. Even though her and Bo have been there, they still don't know what lurks below, just like the Mythosaur. There are many beasts and monsters on that planet. Notice how she doesn't mention the Mythosaur, though. I believe she's keeping this all a secret because she knows that if anyone finds out about the Mythosaur, they will try and go and tame it themselves. And this, of course, is much higher in command than owning the Darksaber. Many stand up to go with Bo, including the armorer who always said it was poisoned. They're coming together as a crew now, and it's really cool to see. As they fly over Mandalore, and Axe mentions that he was there when it happened in response to Paz Vizsla's realization that the planet is much worse than he thought, we see how each Mandalorian has a different perspective of Mandalore and everything that's happened to it, as well as where they were when the Purge hit. Everything is crystallized over. The surface is so much higher now than it originally was, essentially baked on top of the actual infrastructure. They hop out of the ship and land down using their jetpacks. A pirate ship approaches them from the horizon, and I get the feeling someone really likes pirate ships this season, and pirates in general. Anyways, I thought it was really cool, it was different. They're just sailing across the crystalline surface. They stop before the Mandos, and we see they're also Mandalorians, as they ask for food. They recognize Bo-Katan's voice and fly over to pledge their loyalty. Skinny Pete looks like he's got a B2 super battle droid head as a pauldron. Now, if you don't know who Skinny Pete is, go and watch Breaking Bad. As they dine on the ship that night, it's explained that the Empire seized any ships that escaped the planet and bombed the planet twice over because we refused to surrender, or at least he believes. Bo explains at the dinner table that... This is not the case. She did surrender to Moff Gideon after the Night of a Thousand Tears. No one knew this. She explains the ISB had reached out for her to come to a negotiation of a ceasefire. In giving up the fight, Moff Gideon would spare all of her people. However, of course, he betrayed her and took the Darksaber. The clans discuss amongst one another how they all survived, and it's cool to just see all these different Mandalorians together from all different walks of life. The armor explains that they hid on the moon of Concordia. Now, this is where Death Watch moved to when they disagreed with the new Mandalorians in the Clone Wars, which of course was Bo-Katan's sister Duchess Satine Kree's Obi-Wan Kenobi's girlfriend. She is asked if she is Death Watch, and the Armorer says Death Watch died long ago, splintering into many different factions. And of course, this is because she said that they hit on Concordia, and Death Watch built their base on Concordia. But as the armor assures them, they are not Death Watch. Death Watch was pretty hardcore and violent, despite their ideologies and beliefs in the old ways of Mandalore, so it's clear why she'd want to make it known that she's not part of their group. bo speaks about Mandalore and how powerful it always was. And this is very true. Mandalore was one of the most formidable planets and races in the entire galaxy. It was so many different people tried to dominate this planet and take it under their control, but they never could because the Mandalorians were just such savage fighters and they worked together so well. However, it was their own infighting that destroyed them when nobody else could. Din has a moment with Bo-Katan and he says that he never knew the truth. She blames herself for the loss of Mandalore and her people. He assures her that they will rebuild it. She mentions the blade to Din, and he says it means nothing to our people, nor does bloodline or creed, but what does matter is honor. He says he serves her for this reason alone, and he walks away. It gives her a bit of a different understanding that, hey, maybe some of these Mandalorians don't really care about all of this fancy stuff we care about, or elitist stuff, they just care about honor, and that's it. So they head for the forge, and this was mentioned a few episodes ago by the Armorer and Bo-Katan. They mentioned it as singing with music of the hundreds of hammers building armor. As they head there, the Armorer transports the sick pirates to ax ship for medical help. Paz and ax fight over a game of Star Wars chess checkers, and it's a stalemate Somewhat, until Grogu steps in with his IG-12 body and says no, telling them not to fight anymore. Bo-Katan says you've taught your apprentice well, and Mando says he didn't learn that from him, as the Luke-Mandalorian theme plays. So of course Luke taught him this, that fighting is really unnecessary, but it is needed as a last resort if there's no other option. However, a situation like this where they're supposed to be on each other's team doesn't. Jedi don't fight like this. They don't fight for nothing. As they head towards the forge, a massive dinosaur blows their ship up. And this is not the Mythosaur. The Mythosaur is much bigger and more powerful. They escape to a cave and move further down, finally getting to the forge. They hear jetpacks and realize Imperials are headed their way. They fly now. (laughs) These Imperials are fitted with the white Beskar armor that we see. Axewoves gets out of there to call for reinforcements, escaping super fast through a small hole in the roof. They all shoot at one another and the Mandos take them out successfully until they're foolishly lured into a trap. How these warrior tribes didn't see that coming, I I don't know. Maybe it was their bloodlust. As they notice a massive army of Imperial TIE fighters and weaponry, they realize that this is an Imperial base. They're ambushed and separated by a door that closes, where Din fights off the stormtroopers in Beskar, getting tied down when Moff lands in his new suit. Now, this was wild. This next generation of dark trooper suit that he mentions, I believe, is lightsaber resistant. And especially after seeing Luke Skywalker, you're going to bet he made it lightsaber resistant. So, the Phase 2 Dark Troopers, which we saw in Season 2, and I believe they were Phase 2, weren't lightsaber resistant, but Phase 3 is. Moff Gideon's helmet has horns, so does the armorer's. And there's only one group of Mandalorians who have horns on their helmets, Darth Maul's Loyalists. Now, when Darth Maul took Mandalore and took the Darksaber, after beating Pre Vizsla in the Clone Wars. There were many people of Death Watch who joined him and were very loyal to him, and many people who were not. And the people who were not were, of course, Bo-Katan. Now, I believe the armorer could be working with Moff Gideon. I believe Moff Gideon is loyal to Darth Maul's leadership as ruler of Mandalore. Why else have horns on his helmet? It's very indicative of Maul Gideon talks about the Cloners, the Jedi, the Mandalorians, all having something special to offer about them. He plans to aggregate the best of each and bring order to the galaxy. So, I think Gideon wants to try to create the perfect warrior army, a cloned batch of force sensitives wearing Mandalorian armor. This would be absolutely wild, and it would give him so much control over the galaxy. I mean, think of stormtroopers, but just think of those stormtroopers having Beskar armor, so they're pretty much invincible, and also they have Force abilities. Pretty much game over. Gideon sends Din to the debriefing room to be questioned and tortured most likely. He turns to Bo-Katan after hearing her voice and demands the Darksaber. As she nods to Paz Vizsla and they all blast the doors as Gideon opens them, they are met with massive amounts of fire on both ends. Bo runs to the back and Qui-Gon Jinn style puts the Darksaber through the blast door and cuts a hole for them to escape through. Paz is holding them off with his gadling minigun blaster and closes the door on himself, telling Bo to go as he takes them all on like a boss. This is the way. His blaster overheats and he manhandles all of them. I mean, if you're going to go out, this is the way to do it. Until, of course, three Mandalorian-styled Praetorian guards appear to defeat him. And I say this because if you look at their visors, they have a T-visor, and the ones in The Last Jedi didn't have that. They slash, they stab him at the corners of his armor's weak openings, killing him. He goes out like an absolute beast, and I was really upset to actually see him go, because I liked his character. I feel like it was starting to develop. He was coming around, and I enjoyed having his stoic, powerful presence in the crew. Especially, you know, showing him with his son now joining the clan, it would have been interesting to see their dynamic together. His son will be very devastated to learn of his father's sacrifice. The Praetorian Guards have a different helmet than they do in the sequel trilogy. And I want to mention that while they have a T-Visor, they look a lot like the Shadow Guards from Legends and the Force Unleashed. You remember the one that we fought in the game? These guys are incredibly powerful, and they could actually use the Force, including Force Lightning. I kind of always thought of these guys as like the original Inquisitors, because I always thought that they were just some sort of brainwashed Jedi that fell. Anyways, these Praetorian Guards here look like some sort of Mandalorian variation, and it makes me wonder if they're different from the sequel trilogy ones or not. Maybe they have Mandalorian armor on, I'm not really sure. We end the episode with Paz Vizsla face down as the Praetorian Guards walk away. So, this episode was my favorite so far the whole season, which, of course, isn't saying a whole lot, since the season has been pretty all over the place, but this one definitely was awesome. I loved seeing the camaraderie of the Mandalorians, despite their warring tribes, they all came together. I believe the spies were, of course, Kane, no doubt, but also the armor and the pirates. There's no way that those pirates wouldn't be loyal to Gideon this whole time, as they roamed the surface and were supposed to expect they weren't discovered by Gideon or the Empire? I'm sure the Empire offered them food and help, and them being sick was perhaps a way for the armorer to get out of there with them. I think Gideon has spies everywhere, and there's a reason why these stormtroopers, these Imperials with Beskar armor, knew exactly where these Mandalorians were. Unless they're of course following them, which I guess is an easy answer. But given the title of the episode, I believe there were some spies, there were some inside jobs here, and I'm excited to find out who they are. Now, the biggest twist, of course, would be if the armor was one of the spies, one of Gideon's spies. Now, I have a very hard time believing she is, as she was devoted so much of her life to this faction and to her tribe, but the fact that we now see his horned helmet along with hers, it just makes me question things. Maybe she's rook cast. Just like I announced in my previous video as a theory. The other possibility is, of course, that she's just Zabrak and the horns are because she can't wear the helmet any other way. Either way, I enjoyed this episode. I wonder what's going to happen to Din going forwards. Will Grogu ever use the Force again? I was hoping he would have just gone crazy and broken the door open, you know, using the Force as Din was being captured by Moff Gideon. But he didn't really do anything. He's just kind of been reduced to sort of not much of anything this season. So I'm hoping we get to see him in some action in the finale, which comes next week, and I'll see you guys in the watch party there. But until then, we have tons of videos and live streams and stuff to talk about. Thanks for watching today's breakdown, leave a like if you did enjoy it, and I'll see you all in the next one. Until then, my fellow Jedi and Sith friends, remember, the Force will be with you, always.